Hello, and thanks for listening to Healthcare 360, a podcast by Beth Israel Leahy Health. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the chief clinical officer here, and I have three amazing guests that are doing really great work for our patients and our community. We'll dive into the topic today, but since there are so many of us here in the room today, I'm going to turn it over to each of them to introduce themselves. So, Cynthia, I'll start with you. Hi, I'm Cynthia Ayub. I am the executive director of hospice and palliative care here at Beth Israel Leahy Health at Home. And I've been doing hospice and palliative care for the last 20 years of my 35-year career. And what drew me to this work is the compassion that I have for people. And I was always drawn to patients that were towards their end of life, even on the surgical floor or in the ICU or wherever. I just happened to love to be around people dying and um, wanted to make sure that people had the best quality of life that they could. And yes, dying with dignity is really important to me. Yeah. And you're a nurse by background. I am a nurse by background, yes. Yeah. Awesome. And I'll turn it over to you. I'm Roger Schott. I'm the medical director for BALH Hospice and Palliative Care. I'm a family practitioner by training. Starting out in family practice, I realized that I really like taking care of geriatric patients. So I went back and got certification in geriatrics. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, it grew the fact that a lot of patients as they age have chronic medical illnesses. And I felt that I was dealing a lot with patients trying to transition them to the end of life and making them as comfortable as possible. So I then went back and got board certified in hospice and palliative care so that I could have more expertise in trying to help my patient population and then others transition through the course of their natural illnesses. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know you were a family physician, Roger. So am I. So a long tradition of geriatrics and hospice and palliative care and family medicine. Yes. Very cool. And Jen? My name is Jen Gismont, and I'm the president of Continuing Care for BILH. And hospice and palliative care is one of the programs that I'm responsible for. But within Continuing Care and just all of our senior health-related programs, I think what really drew me to this is that all of our services are geared towards quality of life in the senior however one defines senior years, and seeing the outcomes of the work that we do, I think is incredibly rewarding. Jen, if you could, because maybe in a future episode, we'll come back and talk about other things in your area, but maybe go a little deeper onto the other. Sure. So operationally, we have certified home care, we have hospice and palliative care, and we have assisted living within our system. But I've also worked very closely with adult day health and skilled nursing facilities or acute rehab facilities. So what are typically known as post-acute care Mm -hmm. programs, but many times it's pre-acute or instead of acute. So I think that's continuing to evolve. Yeah. And I love the title of your area in terms of continuing care rather than just post-acute because it just feels more comprehensive than that. So we'll look forward to more conversation around some of that other stuff uh, on a different episode. But obviously, Roger and Cynthia and Jen, but all three of you here really talk about the idea of hospice and palliative care in the industry. And it's not just my sense. I think facts would support it. And certainly Jen and I have discussed over time what feels like a gross underutilization of both of those areas of expertise and specialty in healthcare. And I'd love to dig into a little bit as to the why, and also a little bit of what we're hoping for in this conversation is to think about some of the misconceptions that certainly physicians and staff and even healthcare leaders might have, but also folks that are listening that are not in healthcare and often have big questions about what it is. I know even when I think about my own family, they have lots of misconceptions as to what it is, but I don't know who wants to start, but 
I can start on. I think where we should start is probably defining what hospice and palliative care are. And I think that that's where a lot of misconceptions are, that I think that a lot of people feel that they're one and the same, and they aren't. They're two different things. Hospice is part of palliative care, but it's a separate entity within palliative care. Palliative care is really working with people that have chronic medical illnesses that may progress over time and that they need symptom management and they may need emotional and spiritual support as well as advanced care planning to decide what are the wishes of that person over time given the nature of their illness. And people that work in palliative care are doctors and nurse practitioners and social workers work with families and patients around defining how can we make their life, their quality of life better and how can we help them make decisions around their goals of care given the fact that they have a chronic medical illness that over a course of time will naturally get worse Mm -hmm. and not better. Hospice on the other hand is when you get to that point where with a chronic medical illness whether it's cancer, whether it's congestive heart failure or end-stage pulmonary disease where they're really not responding to the treatment that was given to them. And a decision is made either by the healthcare team or the family or the patient that it's not worth going through life-sustaining procedures anymore and more aggressive treatment to try to prolong life. But really at that point is really we want to focus on comfort and care of the patient. And that's where hospice comes in. And usually because of Medicare regulations and insurance regulations, a physician has to certify that the patient has less than six months to live. And And in that time period, then hospice would come in and provide that support both to the patient with symptom management and family members. I think one of the most important things with hospice, it has the resources to provide that emotional care Mm -hmm. and support to the family, not only during the time when the patient is actively dying, but also for a year afterwards to kind of be there to support families as they deal with the death of a loved one. Yeah, and that's a lot. Actually, I didn't even realize that even a year after there's support services available through hospice. Cynthia, can you talk a little bit about what the care actually looks like? Who's providing that care and maybe thematically some of the things that your team deals with? Sure. So in hospice, we have the patient and the family are actually at the center of our care. We have registered nurse who is the leader of the team and a social worker and spiritual care. So it's about emotional, physical, and spiritual care of the patient. We don't just look at what's causing the symptoms. Mm -hmm. We really want to make sure that we're helping to decrease that burden of symptom. We have hospice aides that also can go out and do personal care for the patient. We have our very special volunteers who volunteer their time to either sit respite for the family so they can run out to the store for a little bit or companionship, working on a veteran program. So we'll have veteran to veteran volunteers to sit with patients that have served for our country, which is really, really amazing. We have our physician as well. That helps. Our medical directors are board certified in hospice and palliative care, as well as several of our staff members. So we really want to focus on the patient's quality of life. It's Mm -hmm. not about death and dying. When people think about hospice, they think we come in and we're doom and gloom, but we like to brighten our patients' family day, help them with support. We're 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have a nurse available to answer questions, to help walk through things that might seem really scary at two o'clock in the morning. Right. And so you're never alone. There's always a lifeline to call. So that support for patients and families is quite wonderful. You had asked at the beginning about why is it so underutilized? And some of the best questions you get after a patient has passed away, a family member will say, I don't understand why I waited so long. We were so afraid of the service and I should have taken this sooner because it is a wonderful benefit. We really wrap around that patient, keeping them at home. About 80% of our patients are in the home setting Mm -hmm. where they want to be around their loved ones, around the things that they love to 
be with to die with dignity there. In thinking about hospice, why does it take so long for people to call? And it's for anyone. I mean, yeah, I think in society, really, it's our culture. You know, there's always something else we can do. They feel as though they're giving up on their patient as a physician, I believe, and the family also. Like, if we say, oh, they're going to have hospice, it means they're going to die maybe tomorrow. You know, Mm -hmm. if we just even say the words. Whereas patients live six months, sometimes nine, ten, Sometimes a year, depending on what's happening, as we do such a nice job on their symptom burden, helping to increase their quality of life. And so... So I have to agree with Cynthia. I think that part of the reason is the culture, the medical culture around death and dying in the United States, particularly. It's not so much in other countries, but in the United States, we have removed death from the home setting and put it into the hospital setting for Mm -hmm. years. So for a majority of patients for a while, they died in the hospital and not at home Mm -hmm. where they can have the comforts of having family members around their own social belongings and things that they like around them to comfort them. I think a lot of that is the training that physicians go through. lot of physicians in our training, at least in my training, I didn't really get exposed to the dying process. Mm -hmm. It was mostly the exposure for me to how do we treat an acute illness and how do we get that patient over that acute illness and well and back home again. So I think a lot of this is education on the part of services like ours to physicians to educate them that hospice and death and dying is part of the natural process of life and that, you know, it's not giving up on the patient, but it's really realizing at what point is it that what you're doing is causing more harm to the patient and not a benefit to the patient and how can we switch that over to providing more care and comfort to them and making sure that the quality of life towards the end is the best it can be for that person. Yeah, for sure. That's where our palliative care nurse practitioners are wonderful. Having those conversations, a serious illness conversation when a physician might not be comfortable having that conversation or having the time to sit down to talk with the family and the patient about what their goals are. You know, we have a dedicated person that's going to go into their home, meet with them in their living room and have this discussion where they'll be more relaxed and we take our time to really talk to the patient and their family and be an advocate for what they want. We ask the questions. Yeah. I think when you're a family member who is faced with a loved one, approaching end of life, it can be both frightening and overwhelming. And so a lot of times I think people just simply don't know what they need or don't know how to ask for it or when is the right time to Mm -hmm. ask for it. I think death and dying tend to be not family dinner table conversation. (laughs) So not necessarily something people are comfortable with talking about in general. And then I think, as Cynthia said, when the family experiences how hospice can come in and really take an incredibly overwhelming and frightening experience and really guide you through so that you understand what's happening, what to expect, when to reach out, the purposes of medications at end of life. And they really simplify the process in a lot of ways. And I think really the benefit to the family is tremendous Mm -hmm. and not to understate the value to that patient at end of life. But having been through it with one family member who graduated from hospice twice, and it wasn't until the third time on hospice that she actually passed away, but the support is incredible. And sometimes the improvement in just quality of life and experience for that patient. It's therapeutic in some ways. Absolutely. And then in contrast... I've been through with another family member who was in and out of the hospital probably 10 times in a month and treatment and tests and procedures that really in hindsight were unnecessary and unwanted. And unfortunately, that final month 
before his passing was no quality of life. And yeah. so you don't get a second chance to do that right. So, Jen, you said a couple of things. One is that you alluded to the fact that often the way that we die in the United States as a rule does not seem to match or reconcile against what almost every survey and interview that's been done on populations and what their wishes are it doesn't seem to match with what people seem to want, yet it happens. Why do you suspect that that's the case? A question for anyone. Why is it that it doesn't reconcile? And if you had the magic wand question, what would you do to change that? I think a lot of that has to do with the fragmentation of our healthcare system. We don't, particularly in an area such as eastern Massachusetts, where we have large hospital systems, the medical care is kind of fragmented, where you have primary care doctors taking care of them in the community, they go into a hospital, a hospitalist takes care of them, they may go to rehab afterwards, and someone else, another care team takes care of them. But sometimes it's not that communication across the care team of really what are the goals and expectations of that patient, and really what is the prognosis of what that illness for that patient. So I think that's part of the problem. I don't think that's the only part of the problem. I think that the other part is that, again, what we, we alluded to earlier is that the comfort level with having that conversation and the time to have that conversation. Most office practices are very busy, and to yeah. sit down and really have an in-depth conversation about what your goals of care are and really what you want done at the end of life, most clinicians just don't have that time built into their schedules in order to have that conversation with their patients, which is unfortunate. I think that there's been many attempts to try to correct that. Or, you you know, and hopefully over time we'll be able to come to grips with that and figure out a way to yeah. have those really important conversations earlier on with patients so right. that we don't wait to the last minute till the crisis happens That's right. to have that conversation. Because I bet all of us in their physicians and nurses and others are probably more used to a time where you're having those conversations in the ER right. when someone's coming in and asking about their wishes, which is probably the absolute wrong time to do that, I right. would imagine, right. Uh, right. for lots of reasons. We've focused a lot on hospice in this first part of the conversation. Perhaps we can switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about palliative care, which for me is a harder one. And Roger, you mm -hmm. described it in terms of what it is and how we would define it. I have said for many years now that it feels like palliative care suffers from a marketing problem, like not knowing where it fits and having people understand it. And despite the fact that there is overwhelming data on its benefit, both first and foremost for patients, but also on quality and cost of care and almost every measure, maybe once again, why, why is that? This is a common thing, like the data doesn't seem to match what actually happened. I think, though, in the past probably 10 years has been somewhat of a shift in that at least people are saying the words now, palliative care. <laughs> We're really starting and foundational. Yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a nice segue to help with those discussions mm -hmm. to at least be able to say palliative care and to get them involved in patient serious illness conversation. And our team is a consultative service. You know, we have nurse practitioners, I have an RN case manager, social workers that we follow that patient wherever they go. So they'd be in their home, they could be in a skilled nursing facility. We provide a lot in our hospitals within the system to go meet the patient and have those conversations. So yes, it is very much an underutilized benefit that patients can have. And again, it has to do with the physicians, the comfort of having these discussions. And I know that medical schools are now focusing on yeah, some palliative care yeah. rotation. Yeah, sure. And so it's really important. I love working with the residents when we have residents that come mm -hmm. through to talk through with them what it is about a 
dying patient and how the trajectory of the disease is going to happen and what is available to patients and yeah. families, mm-hmm. you know, to help them with that burden and the fear, easing their fear. I think some of it is that the confusion between hospice and palliative care as well. When we talk about palliative care, we're just talking about symptom management, really helping the patient understand their diagnosis, what their prognosis, how they're going, and then how do we manage their symptoms. But we're not talking about stopping any treatments. We're not just talking about being at the end of their life. They may have many, many years of life still ahead of them, but we want to make sure that that quality of life, that comfort during that time period is as best as it possibly can. While they're getting maybe aggressive treatment, you know, for whatever their cancer or for their lung disease or their heart disease. And I think that's where the disconnect comes a lot of times yeah. is that people feel that they associate the palliative care, oh, that must be hospice, when it really isn't. It's really right. just managing symptoms. I think the other thing that we have to come to grips with is how do we finance it? Palliative care, the cost of it, of having someone be a palliative care person to go into your home and talk to them, there's a cost to that. And how does that cost get reimbursed from insurance companies and Medicare and things like that? Mm-hmm. Where hospice is a separate, distinct entity within Medicare and most insurance that will pay for that separately. Palliative care is not under that cost structure. So it's a little little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, I have a couple questions for you, I guess, building off of that a little bit. Operating an entity for both hospice and palliative care in several other podcasts, we've talked about the workforce issues globally in healthcare. How does that translate into this work? How easy is it to recruit social workers, nurses, physicians to provide these kinds of services if we've already established that at baseline, the vast majority of clinicians as well as patients have some level of discomfort with this? Does that affect your recruiting and your operations? Yes and no. So I think we're faced with the same challenges everyone is faced with in terms of recruitment and just workforce challenges. At the same time, I think the experience has been consistent that for those clinicians who want to work in hospice or palliative care, they're not coming to do it for the money. They're not coming to do that because they were choosing that versus something else. Mm -hmm. It's more of a calling. They not only have a comfort with it, but they really have a passion for it. I think, you know, as I look at our team of clinicians that provide our hospice and palliative care services, they're just exceptional people Mm -hmm. that are comfortable in so many different scenarios where the majority of people would be uncomfortable, you know, and they really help people through it. They're incredibly resilient. It's really an amazing group of clinicians that work with these families, not only through the palliative and then hospice program, but also through the bereavement services for the family following the patient's passing. I want to come back to some of the payment issues that Roger discussed, but Cynthia, I have a question for you. I think when you think about your team and what Jen just said, I have to imagine, though, it's still hard, right? As much as you have a calling, you develop relationships, certainly in primary care. I think you develop relationships with people over time, and it really does take a toll on you when a bad outcome happens or an even an expected one where people pass away. I shouldn't even label it as a bad outcome, right? Like, I'm sort of catching myself. That would be a good outcome. (laughs) That's right, exactly. Yeah. they, they died with grace and dignity. Yes, is that a good would be outcome. the goal. So I'm retraining my brain here as we speak. But I still imagine it's hard. How do you work with your staff in terms of dealing with this, perhaps a sense of loss that they might all feel over time? You know, we are a team. And so not one person is alone ever. And we do have our bereavement staff, our wonderful social work and chaplains as well, are part of our team. And so we provide support to each other. Because we are walking that walk every day and seeing so much suffering that we do see. And there was lots of sad stories and things that we, you know, 
you're not going to see on an average day. Mm-hmm. You know, 90% of our patients are going to die. There are a small percentage that graduate from hospice, mm-hmm. but it's important that they have, they're well-grounded and they have each other. Mm-hmm. And so we make space for that during team meeting, during our interdisciplinary team meeting. We discuss each death. There's a reason for that. We want to see what their risk is for the bereavement of the loved ones that are here. But we also do it for some closure for the team because you may have been caring for someone for nine, 10 months and you're in their home. It's a very intimate relationship that you develop. You get to know these people, their families, yeah, their children, their grandchildren their loves, their hobbies, you know, they really, really appreciate their patients. And so it gives them some closure. So yeah. for sure. And we do in servicing as well. Okay. You know, how would you handle grief and support? Making sure that they have great professional boundaries. You know, when you're in the hospital, your boundaries are defined yeah, for sure. you by the walls. Right, right. When you're out in the community, that can get very gray. And so keeping those boundaries and helping yourself to be able to cope through it. When you first start doing this work, there's a lot of literature out there. You can read about it, a hospice worker, and there can be sometimes some depression in those first couple of months until you develop the skill set. It really is a skill set. It's a specialty, and it takes a lot of tools to get through our days. Yeah, I'm sure that that's the case. We're swinging wildly back to something less intense, perhaps, but not any less difficult sort of policy and payment around these services. I don't know who wants to start, but I imagine it's a bit of a hot mess. I think to follow up on something Roger said, underfunding is one thing, but I think it's driven by the services undervalued by some of the payers and not recognizing the role that palliative care plays, not only on its own in and of itself, it can be a service used in isolation from any other services, but also as a real bridge that can connect patients at the right time to hospice services. So when you think about our continuum, we have a lot of patients who are in our home care services many times. And then at the right time, their home care clinician will involve palliative care. That palliative care clinician may follow that patient long after home care has exited that patient's care. And then again, at the right time, it feels very seamless to then transition into hospice services, whereas sometimes it's a lot to be in a service and then just transferred right over. So, Mm -hmm. okay, you're out of home care, you're into hospice now. That bridge, I think, is really, really helpful to a lot of patients and families. And they gain an understanding of sort of how the care changes and how the goals of care change Mm -hmm. over that trajectory. But so I think the undervaluing and the underfunding, the way that manifests is that there's less access to palliative services. So I think recognizing the role that palliative could play in advanced care planning while you're really taking a holistic view to managing symptoms and quality of life for someone, there's so much more value that extends beyond that, but it needs to be valued for the full role as opposed to sort of a narrow view of symptom management. And then I think if the value was there and the reimbursement was there, there would be more providers, there would be better access. And then I think I think palliative care would really start to play a much more prominent role over the trajectory of a patient's illness, especially as you approach end of life. Yeah. The thing that's a little strange about that to me, though, is that there is plenty of research from if you were an insurance company or a risk-bearing entity in a value-based environment. It feels like there is a tremendous amount of evidence in a very narrow definition of value, because you're using value in the big V, like the overwhelming sort of life value, societal value, healthcare value. 
which is I completely get. In a much more narrow scope, there's, in my mind, very clear evidence on the role of palliative care in reducing total cost of care, reducing unnecessary hospitalizations and other outcomes. So it feels like, at least empirically, the evidence is there, yet our payer and payment policy hasn't caught up to that. Like, I struggle with that. Perhaps it's not dissimilar than to primary care. Clear, very clear value in primary care, very grossly under valued from an economic perspective. Is it similar, Roger? I don't I think it is very similar to that. I think that because there's not a clear if you have a put an example, if you had a problem with your heart and you went go into the hospital and you get cardiac catheterization and you get a cardiac bypass, there's a definite benefit that is seen by the patient, by the surgeon, and by the insurance company, they have to pay for these procedures. Where with palliative care, it's kind of nebulous. It's out there where you're going in, you're providing comfort to them, you're providing them education about their chronic medical illness. You're providing them a place to discuss what their goals of care are, what they want to be done. And so it's not like so neatly packaged. I think that's probably what mm-hmm. the best way to say it. it's not so neatly packaged that insurance companies can actually put in, okay, well, this is where the value is for me from the insurance right. perspective for that, on that. I think, as you said earlier, you know, the studies have shown that patients that are involved in palliative care and ultimately in hospice have better outcomes in the end. They utilize services less in the system, so the cost of the system is less, and they have a better quality of life overall. Yeah. And trying to translate those studies <laughs> to payment from an insurance company, there's a big gap there, Don, still. Yeah, so. yeah. Totally makes sense. Once again, as lots of folks know, I have a population health background, but in my mind, a lot of those issues really get resolved in the context of accountable care because then you're thinking about you have a different incentive, right? Which then sometimes drives different behaviors, hopefully for the better. Mm-hmm. But very interesting. I think, have you seen sort of innovations in the palliative care or hospice space either? Is there anything technology can do to help? Is it really doesn't lend itself to that or any ways of delivering these services that you feel are either coming or have come? So, you know, the pandemic kind of pushed us to start to use technology because, you know, hospice and palliative care, we're all about the touchy-feely things, you know, (laughs) where we're very, yes. And so to put a video screen in between felt very impersonal. But our clinicians have adapted to that, especially in the palliative care realm, you know, on follow-up calls and things to do some video chats with Mm -hmm. patients and families. They really enjoy that now. So, yeah, for sure. And as the shortage of nursing staff, we have to start to think innovatively Mm -hmm. of how we're going to be able to provide care to patients without actually being in front of them physically, but exuding the compassion through the screen too is also a challenge. Um, So for sure there is a space for it. Love innovation. So if you have some ideas, yeah. well, we, can talk, we can talk can after media, uh, right? the podcast. So yeah. folks have brand new ideas for, for those, these services. We'll take yes. all ideas. Right? Yes, we would. And I know very concretely, maybe tactically here, in terms of advanced care planning, I know there's a transition within Massachusetts specifically, but a lot of states have sort of transitioned to sort of different ways of doing interlife orders and those sorts of things. I don't know if anyone can speak to some of the changes that are happening from a policy perspective around the MOLTS and mm-hmm. 
So Massachusetts did pass uh, several years ago a advanced directive policy. It's actually a law in Massachusetts in its uh, most form, which is the Massachusetts Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It's actually a law in Massachusetts, and it's actually a form that the state has developed that allows a patient or a family member, if they are the healthcare proxy for the patient, to complete what they want done for the patient at any point, whether they want them to be on a ventilator, whether they want them to be resuscitated, whether they want hemodialysis or IV fluids and things. And that's a discussion they have with their primary care doctor or another, or do- another doctor in the right hospital right. Or, or a palliative care doctor. And they have that discussion with them and really developing a plan of what would you want to ha- us to do to you if something life-threatening happened to you? Mm-hmm. And then you complete that form and it's signed. It becomes a permanent thing that everybody has to respect. You know, if you present to the emergency room with that form, they will respect whatever's written on that form. Emergency services will also respect what's on that form. And then when you end up going to a re- have like a skilled nursing facility, they will also respect what you completed on that form. So it has changed a little bit of what we used to do prior to that. Prior to that, it was so individualized and it didn't carry forward so that if you were a, what we call do not resuscitate, meaning that we were not going to be doing CPR on you in the event that your heart was to stop and you ended up collapsing on a field somewhere and the EMS picked you up and they would immediately start CPR on you because they didn't have anything in writing that said that not to. And so, you know, even if we had that form completed somewhere else at the DNR form, it wasn't the law. So it didn't carry from one institution to a next. And that's the difference between the most form and the old, what we called um, DNR forms that the state used mm-hmm. to have, is that those forms didn't move from one institution to the next. Right. The most form being a law in Massachusetts, it does carry from one point of care to the next point of care. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. And I know many states are considering similar types of legislation. I think everyone's generally aware that this is a problem, and I guess policy is trying to catch up a bit. What's happening out there? Well, I just want to say thank you to all three of you for the work that you do and your teams do. This is pretty amazing, and clearly the passion for it shows in conversation with you today. And just thank you very much for your time. Thank Thank you you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And if folks have thoughts or questions, ideas for how to advance palliative care and hospice or maybe less intense ideas for future podcasts, please leave us comments on social media or email us. And thank you for listening.